you believe, as I do, that a few minutes in heaven will get everything straightened out, made right, (laughs) prioritized, you should know that not only will our presence before God in heaven accomplish all that and more, but even the vision of heaven is intended to do that in our lives. The record of the Apostle John and his revelation from God accomplishes the same things. For those who are wondering about the deity of Christ, all you have to do is just watch and listen to the worship of the Lamb around the throne. For those who today might be wondering if God's plans and purposes will be fulfilled, study in this apocalypse at the precision of his plans as they are unveiled. For those tempted to think that God is a just a mystical force or some ethereal source of power you can tap into. Note in John's tour of heaven the presence of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. If you've fallen for the view that God is learning as he goes along, that he just sort of makes it up as he watches us and how we act and you'll discover otherwise in just simply this vision in John's tour of heaven where the future of this planet and the universe and mankind is already written down on a scroll. In other words, you could think of it like this. God has a script. He has a script. It's already written out. He alone is the author of it, and he will fulfill it. The the seven-sealed scroll about to be unrolled was finished, and the ink was dry, so to speak, long before puny mankind ever raised his doubts and his disbelief and his disrespect toward the throne of heaven. As we have done in our series in these two chapters as we study the hymns of heaven, I've tried to bring to you error that's being taught as it relates to God and heaven. If you've given ear to Marianne Williamson's teaching of the Course in Miracles in Oprah Winfrey's radio show that Jesus is merely a symbol that can stand for any god or goddess you'd wish to pour into that name, you notice in the vision the singularity of Christ's sovereignty. If you have fallen for Rhonda Byrne's secret and have come to believe that you can command the universe telling it what you want and the universe will respond to your will, you note here in John's record of the revelation that the universe follows the bidding and obeys the command of sovereign God alone. If you've fallen further into this false teaching and all those who write and think with her, and I quote that you are the creator and you are creating the creation of you on this planet. You are God in a physical body. The birds sing for you. The sun rises and sets for you. The stars come out for you, end quote. You note here in the truth of heaven that John is able to describe, though he has difficulty describing it, the birds and planets do not exist for our honor, but for his. They do not sing of our glory, they will sing of his glory alone. If you've been caught up in the latest fancy over the secret and the law of attraction, and you've begun to believe that, that you can speak your own destiny and you can mouth the words of your own future, you might want to study a little further how utterly dependent we are upon the will of God who alone determines the destiny of the universe. I want to warn you, dear flock of God, teaching that you are divine, that you have the power to create. You are little gods that you command the universe is nothing more than the repackaging of Satan's earliest lies to humanity. And I also want to further warn you 
Much of what Rhonda Byrne and Eckhart Tolle and all of these others are now teaching primarily through the media outlets of Oprah Winfrey to literally millions of people daily. Well, what you need to be warned of, perhaps even more, I believe, is the baptized version of this false teaching into the church. For years now, a loosely associated movement known as the Word Faith Movement has been teaching a Christianized version of creative word power. You say it and it is produced. It is, as it were, guaranteed. Now, the word faith movement basically believes the following principles. All of them, by the way, use biblical language but distort biblical texts. They begin with this premise first, that God creates by using his words that he speaks. That is partly true, but he could think something into being as well. Secondly, mankind is made in the image of God and thus is a little, and I'm quoting, God. Capable of creating through the use of your words as well. Third, the Christian then by faith can create what he speaks. Just speak it. You know, the older version of this was name it and what? Claim it. it. That was way too quick. (laughs) But that's it. Speak words of health and healing and wealth and prosperity and you can have it. By speaking positive, what they call faith-filled words, you create your own future. This is basically the same thing, ladies and gentlemen, as the law of attraction. We get whatever we want. The only difference is the unbeliever is saying the universe will give it to you and the church says, well, God will give it to you. But it's basically the same thing. You have the power in your words to create your destiny. I have appreciated the research into this movement provided by James Walker, the president of Watchman Fellowship. In an article I was sent by him just a few weeks ago, he uncovers a number of teachers in the word faith movement who've come out in recent months espousing even more clearly, it's becoming even more clear if if you will remain alert, that this is the Christianized version of the law of attraction, otherwise known as word-faith. A leading teacher in this movement, he went on to write about it by the name of Charles Capps, wrote, and I quote him, We are capable of operating on the same creative plane as God. From what I was able to read by him, and I studied more than I really want to and I probably won't do it again, but what he means is we have the power to create our lifestyle on earth. Whether we prosper or not, whether we are sick or whole, depends on our creative, faith-filled words. Imagine that. So throughout the Bible, your condition and place in life is described in the Word of God as the will and work of God. But that's too bad because all along it was up to you and you should have spoken prosperity. There was no good reason for Paul to suffer poverty. He could have spoken more words of plenty. There was no reason for him to suffer imprisonment. He should have spoken faith-filled words of freedom. This is nothing more than than the religious-sounding law of attraction. Speak to the universe, and the universe will respond and give you what you want. Walker's article noted another rising star in this way of thinking, a woman with a growing television audience by the name of Joyce Meyer. She said recently, and I quote her, we can speak positive thoughts about ourselves into the atmosphere and thereby prophesy our future, end quote. 
Another leading teacher by the name of Gloria Copeland said in a similar vein, and I quote her, one of the first things my husband and I learned when we started walking in the power of God was that our words had to match what we wanted to come to pass. In other words, you dig beneath the surface and you discover clearly this law of attraction. We declare our future. We speak it, the church says to God, the world says to the universe. Our words determine everything and we bring things to pass by our will. This is nothing more than a Christianized version of the secret, the law of attraction. Your words determine everything which makes you then what? Sovereign, God. The favorite text, by the way, most often distorted and misunderstood by this movement is Genesis 126 and 27, where it says that we've been created in the image of God. They then take that text and distort it, its meaning, to give us then ultimately equal divine power, as it were, literally considering us little gods. According to Copeland and Meyer and Caps and so many others, we're little gods. In fact, in her message, uh, she, uh, she preached to her television audience entitled Authority and Opposition, Joyce Meyer said, and I quote, Why do people have such a fit about God calling us little gods? By the way, that verse is difficult to find. If you find it, let me know. What's God supposed to call us? She says, doesn't the Bible say we are created in his image? See, there's the leap. This teaching, supposedly in the name of Christ, is deeply troubling to me. Being made, dear friends, in the image of God doesn't mean we're godlings. It doesn't mean we're little gods. We're even close. We are inhabited by the person of God. We're not God in any way, shape, or form. It means, among other things, that like God, we, can, we, we have self-objectivity and we live for eternity. We are self-aware. We have a desire for worship. We are immortal. Like God, we have no ending. Unlike God, we had a beginning. That's just a tad of a little difference to me. Being made in the image of God means that we can be creative. It doesn't mean we are little creators. False teaching Elevates the power of man and depersonalizes God into a force you tap into, a divine power you manipulate to do your bidding. He represents a universal secret you learn. You have the power to simply speak a word and prophesy your own future. That is false teaching. That belief would lead someone, no wonder that Kenneth Copeland could make such a statement in a message where he said, when I read the Bible where Jesus said, I am... I just smile and say, I am too. That is false teaching. Even though it comes with a smile. And in the name of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, two minutes in heaven. Or less. Around the throne of this personal, terrifying, majestic, sovereign God we and all others will go to our faces as we fall before him and sing and then rise to sing some more and then fall prostrate once again. Charles Lamb, who wrote in the early 1800s, once told a friend, 
if Shakespeare, I told a group of friends, if Shakespeare was to come into this room, we should all rise to meet him. But if Jesus Christ was to enter, we would fall down and kiss the hem of his garment. Now, when we first arrived at this scene in Revelation chapter 4, John delivered some rather amazing sights and sounds, didn't he? We began to hear the first of several hymns sung by angels and the raptured church in heaven represented by the presbyteroi, the elders. In fact, uh, it, it should be no surprise that music is synonymous with heaven. And this music has been building. Now, we've had to ch- chop it up into 37 messages, but it's, it's been building, hadn't it? No, just five. Then the presbyteroi get added into those first four creatures. You remember that? Go back to verse 8 of chapter 4. They're these strange creatures. They started it all off as we're allowed to overhear them chanting, Holy, holy, holy. And they're circling the throne, the text could imply. Holy, holy, holy. That's all they do. The one who was and is and is to come. The eternal God. Then the presbyteroi in verse 11 add their voices as they cast their crowns before the throne. Worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Then you remember the scene shifted to the one standing beside the throne of God the Father. The lion, verse 5 of chapter 5 of the tribe of Judah. And we are introduced to John's description of Jesus Christ who takes the scroll from his father, representing the truth that Christ is capable of fulfilling the will of the Father on earth. And then both the angels and the church sing, perhaps antiphonally, the third hymn in chapter 5, verse 9. First, the church, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed us for God. I believe the right translation would read that way. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And now perhaps the angels join in. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. They all join in. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's growing. It's expanding. Imagine the scene. Now many Christians in our generation know about Jim Elliott and how their deaths, how the death of Jim and his other comrades brought about an open pathway to the Alka Indians and later many of them came to faith in Christ by the wives of some of these missionaries returning. But few people know about an American Indian named Geronimo. And we know about Geronimo. That's the name we'd scream as we'd charge down the hill as little boys toward unsuspecting girls, right? Geronimo. Well, I don't know how many of us know that Geronimo was converted to Christianity publicly baptized, I discovered, as a follower of Christ at the Apache Mission in Fort Sill Military Reservation in 1903. Imagine singing one day in heaven and kneeling next to Geronimo. I just think that's the greatest thought. That's just the greatest thought. We have no idea. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said it very well. He said, there are three things that will surprise me. You remember? He said, when I get to heaven, one, the the people that are there that I didn't think would be there, the people that aren't there that I thought would be there, and that I am there. What great glory. 
The fourth hymn now begins in verse 11. Let's pick it up there. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. Now, the, the fact, by the way, that the text says they were saying with a loud voice might give the impression they weren't singing. I don't want to bore you with my grammatical study, but legante saying is an amplification of adusin, which clearly in verse 9 refers to singing. I believe that angels, in fact, do sing, and they are singing here evidently with a loud voice. In fact, the words translated loud voice in verse 12 are from the words, the Greek words, phone megale. We turn those around to come up with our word megaphone at the top of their lungs. And how many are there? Did you notice? They are singing with their loudest voices. Verse 11 says, The angels alone numbered myriads of myriads. Myriad is the expression for 10,000. It was the largest unit in the ancient Greek world. It could refer to a literal 10,000. And in the case, if you did the math, and you're talking about 100 million and then another 100 million and hundreds of millions could stand in as an expression as well as this is a number that is impossible to count either way a lot of people here singing a lot of angels hundreds of millions of angels along with the redeemed church and and to whom are we all singing at the top of our lungs notice again in verse 12 worthy is the lamb who was slain we just can't seem to get away from the cross work of christ can we John described Christ earlier in this scene as one who looked as if he had been slain. In other words, Christ retained the scars of his crucifixion. We're not sure how many. Forever, however, reminding us of how we got to the throne. How we got here. The lamb who was slain, he kept his scars forever, reminding us how we are able to be here. These scars on his body are there because of me. I was struck by that as I studied. They are there because of me. They are there because of you. And we glory in this slain lamb who reminds us of his great grace. I've mentioned it before, and I'll mention it here again, this teaching, of course, in miracles deifies self and depersonalizes Christ, makes Jesus just a symbol of overcoming suffering. Marianne Williamson has taught this lesson, and I quote her once more, a slain Christ has no meaning. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Let me say it again. You can see it here in this text. We are before the throne of God because of the old rugged cross. Right? The death of our Savior atoning once and for all upon that cross for our sins is why we are there. We cling to, the hymn writer said, the old rugged cross. Today, now in another movement, which is another study, the emerging church movement and liberals join them alike. They're they're calling the crucifixion, if you can imagine it, with this title. It's Cosmic Child Abuse. Well, be encouraged when you hear things like that. The Apostle Paul promised that to the unbelieving mind, the cross would either be considered foolishness or offensive. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, in spite of that, Paul said, we preach Christ, what? Crucified. Evidently, Jesus Christ isn't embarrassed about it because when we sing in heaven, we're singing about his crucifixion. In fact, the word John used here for slain isn't the word that would be translated crucified. It's a word that literally is rendered slaughtered. The lamb who was slaughtered. It's the same word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament on Isaiah 53, verse 7. Same word when Isaiah wrote that our Lord was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Same word here in Revelation. The lamb that was slaughtered. It's because of Christ the lamb who was slaughtered that we, the redeemed, have been forgiven. And now stand with hundreds of millions of angels and redeemed believers. And guess what? One of our first hymns of heaven refers to that moment in history when he was slain. Now, What follows next is a hymn of praise with seven attributes of this lamb. Again, the number seven subtly implying the perfection and the completion, the comprehensive perfection and majesty of the lamb of God. Let's go through these quickly. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, dunamin, a reference to omnipotent, total, comprehensive ability. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that Jesus Christ is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. He is worthy to receive wealth, pluton, This is not just a reference to spiritual wealth, but to unconditional wealth in every possible realm. Haggai the prophet quoted God saying, All the silver is mine and all the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. Haggai 2.8. Paul refers to the unsearchable riches of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. The lamb is worthy to receive all power and all riches or wealth and all wisdom. Sophion. This is the attribute of God that refers to his understanding and intelligence and skill. According to the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, this is the distinguishing mark of the Messiah as he reigns. Wisdom. Fourth, the hymn continues to sing of the Lamb who is worthy to receive all might. This has the idea of strength. Paul speaks of Christ returning in that terrifying power of his iskun, his strength. He is unstoppable. His will will be accomplished. Fifth, we sing to the Lamb because he's worthy of all temain, worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all honor. Even now, Jesus Christ is dishonored. On the earth. He's ridiculed. Jesus Christ is blasphemed. Jesus Christ is run through the mud by humanity. Here we will sing, He is to be honored above all others. Perhaps you have seen the documentary called Expelled, chronicles how people are losing their jobs and professions for casting doubt on evolution by even suggesting the possibility of an intelligent designer. I watched it the other night with my sons and some of their friends. We had the whole place ourselves. We had six seats anywhere we wanted. 
It was not surprising, but it was still amazing to hear so many supposed scholars forced to speculate as to the origin of life on the planet rather than consider the possibility of intelligent design and certainly much greater than that, the existence of a creator God. I sat there and watched on the screen with some amazement as Richard Dawkins was forced by his own argument into an impossible a corner where, we had, where he had to. He had to postulate that, that since there could be no God, the original cell, the origin of the potential for life, had to be seeded on the planet by aliens. And I watched the expression on his face cloud with anger when the host at the end asked him, so you don't believe in God? And he said, what do you mean? Why, why even ask me that after all I've said? Imagine that one of the, one of the world's well-known defenders of our evolution is forced to declare his faith in the possibility of aliens depositing the original form of life on the earth that started it all rather than crack the door open to the possibility of God. God is not honored. If I were God, I would write at least once a year in the sky with bright clouds In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I would write, you know, Richard Dawkins will be sorry. I'd do that at least (laughs) once a year. I would be honored if I were God. But he isn't by the world at large. But as we'll see in a moment, he will be. The Lamb is worthy also of all glory, number six. You could circle these words as we work through the text and maybe even number them. One through seven. The Lamb is worthy of power. He is worthy to receive all wealth, all wisdom, all might, all honor, and all glory. Doxon. That word gives us our word doxology. The word glory refers to the splendor and fame that characterize everything about him. It characterizes everything about his court. The Lord is connected to this word on several occasions in the New Testament. The pre-incarnate glory in heaven, John 17, 5. Glory bestowed on him at his resurrection and exaltation, John 12. His triumphal glory, which he will reveal at his second coming, Matthew 24, 30. His millennial glory, which will characterize his earthly kingdom, Matthew 25, 31. And his eternal glory, which parallels the glory of the Father. You could spend an awful lot of time just studying the glory of Christ. He is worthy of all glory. The seventh and final attribute, the Lamb is worthy of receiving all blessing. Eulogian gives us our word eulogy. We think of a eulogy as something that nice that's, that, that's said about someone who's died, right? Well, this eulogy is all the wonderful things that could possibly be said about the one, this one, who was alive. Everything that you could think of kind to say of him, he's worthy. Every nice phrase and statement is something he is worthy of. He is worthy of all eulogies. Now, in the first of these five hymns, the four creatures alone chanted their song of God's holiness. And then in the second hymn, the church sang to the worth of God the Father. In the third hymn, in chapter 5, the 
the four living creatures and the elders representing the church sang antiphonally to the worth of Christ and the promise to the church and its future reign on the earth. Now, the choir, by the way, is getting progressively larger. That's what's happening here. Because now in the fourth hymn, hundreds of millions of angels join with the church and the living creatures. But now, in the fifth and final hymn of heaven given to us here, verse 13 informs us that now, listen to what John heard Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Imagine that, ladies and gentlemen. Now the choir is universal. It's global. It encompasses every living creature. All of humanity of all time. It anticipates that great future day when no one will withhold from God his just deserts. In fact, the phrase uh, under the earth is a reference to the demonic world and the inhabitants of future hell. Imagine the implication then. It is no longer representative. This is exhaustive. Not one creature or human being is left silent. This is the fulfillment of Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is kurios. He is God. He's Lord. Every tongue will admit that Jesus Christ is God. Do you know what that means? That means there are no atheists in eternity. Not even in hell. Not one. There will be millions of condemned theists who on this day acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the image of invisible God. Colossians 1.15 I received a note in the mail asking me to stop leading this congregation and worshiping Christ equally with the Father. Not on your life. Not on your life. Sorry, there are churches you can go to that believe that. Throughout history, our Savior has been vilified and scorned. In fact, in recent years, in our generation, while we've been alive... We've seen an increasing number of books and speakers and politicians and scholars and movies and and comedians who love to pick on the person of Christ. He's their favorite whipping post, isn't he? But on this day, on this day, every tongue will acknowledge, every tongue will acknowledge the sovereignty and the deity of Christ. I just went through my study and jotted a few things down. S.G. Brandon will see that Christ was more than a political zealot on this day. Richard Horsley will admit that Jesus wasn't just a social prophet. Gerald Downing will recant his view that Christ was a cynical philosopher. Morton Smith will cringe over his writings that Jesus was a magician who tricked his followers. Lori Beth Jones will recognize Christ was far more than just a good example for corporate CEOs. Barbara Thiering will understand that Christ wasn't influenced by Buddhism. He didn't marry Mary Magdalene in his 30s. 
And he didn't escape crucifixion through medicine. John Allegra will bow his knee to the one he claimed invented his own cult and promoted it through the use of hallucinogenic drugs. John Hick and Shelby Spong will utter through, I believe, probably clenched teeth that he is the truth, even though they claimed he wasn't God in the flesh, didn't atone for anybody's sins on the cross, and didn't rise from the dead. The writers, actors, and producer Martin Scorsese of The Last Temptation of Christ is going to recognize the blasphemy of their work, which had Christ, the Christ figure saying on the stage before crowds, I am a hypocrite, I am afraid of everything, and I am a liar. Dan Brown will understand as he joins in this universal chant to creator Christ that Jesus was not a mere man and the church didn't conspire after all by making up the four gospels. Marianne Williamson will understand on that day that the cross was not a tragic error to cling to. It was something to cry out to. Oprah Winfrey will tragically discover she was wrong on that fateful day recorded and watched, including by myself and millions of other people, when she said, Jesus Christ is not the only way to God. On this day, ladies and gentlemen, Christopher Hitchens will acknowledge the crucifixion was not barbaric, but redemptive. On this day, as the entire universe utters the lyrics of this hymn, Richard Dawkins will acknowledge it was not aliens. And Charles Darwin will join him in acknowledging the creator. This is the goal. This is the goal. You're reading the goal of all of human history, and history is racing toward it. Human history, ladies and gentlemen, is not rushing toward the deification of mankind. It is not racing toward the exaltation of we little gods. It is not rushing toward the oneness that we'll all experience in the consciousness of the universe. It is rushing toward a universal choir. A choir that will sing to him who sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And you know what this means, my friend? This means that you will one day sing these words. Everyone listening to my voice will one day say these words. For you will it be a time of great joy and relief and with John Newton and Geronimo say, well, what do you know? We made it. And this is exciting. Or will it be a day of great terror and regret? What will it mean for you? Well, let me just tell you that now you can accept the Lamb as your Savior. Now you can be assured that you will sing to God with great joy. So my question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Right where you sit, acknowledge that he indeed is God in the flesh. By grace, through faith, place your hope and trust in the crucified, resurrected, interceding, and soon coming sovereign Savior. Call out to him. And I can tell you, based on the word of God, Romans chapter 10, 13, that if you will call upon the name of the Lord, you will be what? Saved. So call on him now. I wouldn't wait another minute. One day, however, it will be forever, forever too late. Now, before this scene closes, I know you thought I was finished. I'm not. Let me just give you one little thing here. I love this little addition to the text. Look at verse 13. This is just, this is wonderful. And the four living creatures said, 
You know, the strange creatures from chapter 4, rotating around the throne of God, they are saying what? Amen. The tense of the verb means that they keep saying it. All the universe is singing, and the four angels are just repeating, Amen! Amen! Let's me know they're Baptists at heart, right? <laughs> Amen! With each attribute, and by the way, in the original language, each has the preceding definite article, which sort of adds a ceremony to it. To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be the blessing. They shout amen. And the honor, and they shout amen. And the glory, and they shout amen. And the might, and they shout amen. Forever and ever, amen. That's a wonderful thought and a wonderful scene. Would you like to play the role of the angels? Let's do that right now. Ready? To him who sits upon the throne and under the Lamb, uh, forever belongs the blessing. You can do better than that. Belongs the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Very good. Can you imagine, can you imagine, dear friends, hundreds of millions of angels and all of humanity acknowledging these truths and the four living creatures shouting, amen. You know what amen means? You could translate it, so be it. It will happen. You could also render it, it's the truth. And I just happen to love that because now the redeemed and all of humanity utters, it's the truth. He is worthy of all blessing. It's the truth. He is worthy of all honor. It's true. He's worthy of all glory. It's true. He's worthy of all might. That's the truth. And for how long? Forever and ever. That's the truth. I think this this hymn writer recreated this scene that we've now studied very well. Listen to the lyrics and notice how this author was indeed impressed and moved to wonder and glory by the scene that we've studied. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Another stanza. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. You can see it's coming right out of Revelation chapter chapter 4 and 5. And then that last stanza. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall, will join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. 